Dr. R.J. Rushduni, RR161CG156, Work, Wealth, and Poverty, from the Easy Chair, Excellent Colloquies on Various Subjects. This is R.J. Rushduni, Easy Chair number 266, May 13, 1992. Douglas Murray, Mark Rushduni, and myself are going to discuss a subject which I believe is uh, uniquely important in our time. Work, wealth, and poverty. Now, there's a reason for bringing those three things together. Historically, it has always been maintained that the way to wealth has been twofold, uh, apart from criminal means, inheritance or work. And for most people, it means work. In fact, uh, some scholars have shown that in the majority of cases, inherited wealth does not last more than three generations. Not having the work ethic, the third generation dissipates what is left. So work historically has been seen as the way to become wealthy. But since World War II, and in particular since 1960, we have had a radical change in our thinking. And anyone who maintains the old position uh, has, in most cases, been treated with contempt and disrespect because the means of acquiring wealth have been seen as a monopoly by uh, Western man and by white Christian nations, and that somehow, if you are not a part of the club, you have no chance of wealth. Of course, the uh, Wall Street Journal recently had a long article about a black man who is enormously successful and uh, this is in a southern town where he has, by work, gained a position of great respect, deals with whites and uh, hires whites. But because our idea that wealth is a product of some kind of fraud practiced on minority groups, has so proliferated in the past generation, we have a crisis in civilization because a large proportion of your white population here and in Europe uh, is convinced that uh, they don't deserve what they have, that somehow they've stolen it from the non-white peoples, and as a result, they're not able to stand up to every kind of criminal aggression, exploitation, and abuse. So you have the white majorities of the Western world acting as though somehow they're guilty 
because they've had the work ethic and succeeded. Now, not only has this attitude been sold to the overwhelming number of white Western peoples, but it has been sold even more convincingly by our school systems, our media, to the minority groups. Now, in a book I'm reading at present, The New Politics of Poverty, The Non-Working Poor in America, by uh, Professor Lawrence M. Mead, M-E-A-D, published just recently by Basic Books, 1992. He calls attention to a very, very interesting fact, which I think takes us to the heart of the problem. I'm quoting from page 32 following. During the 1930s, they, black Americans, had gained from New Deal uh, opportunity and benefit programs as employees and farmers, not as blacks. There was no work problem among them then. They would fight for private jobs, even at the lowest wages, employers recalled, and lacking those strongly preferred government jobs to relief. The 1920s and 1930s were an era of intense black competition with whites for jobs, and the problems of blacks were perceived as those of working men. Unquote. Now, this was a long time before the Civil Rights Bill, and yet, during the Depression, there were no non-working blacks. They had a strong work ethic. There were non-working whites, not as many as there are now. But because the blacks felt they had to work and they had to become a part of a working world to advance themselves, they worked for anything they get, could get. And as a result, they took jobs away from whites because they were ready to work for less. But that no longer is the black attitude in too many instances. And so you have a growing population of blacks who are permanently unemployed and have no desire to work. And you have a growing population of other groups, white groups, that are also homeless or non-working. Now, are there some general statements you'd like to make now? Well, the the natural assimilation process in our so-called melding pot in this country, every uh, racial and ethnic group in the world has come to the United States and gone through an assimilation process. But the the natural cycle of assimilation for the blacks has been interrupted by, uh, a- actually by uh, uh, politicians who have politicized race. 
Mm-hmm. And they have actually held blacks back from that yes. natural assimilation process uh, for political ends. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we've all heard the terms the welfare pimps and the uh, the various groups that uh, uh, get rich uh, off of representing uh, the blacks, uh, and they have become brokers of the, the flow of welfare money. I think sometime in a generation or two, some scholar will write on the worst kind of slavery blacks have ever endured, namely, in the era from the 60s to the present, when they have become the slaves of politicians, their puppets, and have been destroyed in too many instances by welfareism and a non-working mentality cultivated by these liberals. Well, 63% of black children that are born today are born with no father in the family. And these are all men you can drive down the streets of any city in this country and you see men, black men, who are otherwise able-bodied, who are destroying themselves with alcohol and drugs. Now, it's, I can't, in my wildest imagination, uh, see why that many men, regardless of what race, would destroy themselves uh, unless they had no feeling of self-worth. Now, who is giving them that feeling of self-worth? It's not uh, a specialty of the blacks. They're told that by their leaders, their leadership, their their acquired leadership. And they are not part of the melding process, and they have actually uh, been placed in the state of cultural suspended animation. They are not not being allowed to mature as part of the the, uh, citizenry of this country. And, it, and it, where it came to light, and I haven't heard anybody comment on this, was the stark contrast between Korean business owners in, in L.A. who have been in this country maybe five years, couldn't speak a word of English when they got here, and they're in, they, they're, because they have a family structure, came here with a family structure, they uh, went to work at very menial, low-paying jobs, got a little money, got together in groups, opened businesses, and the blacks have been here for 200 years and they are unable to do the same thing. And I think that's where some of the rage comes from. Yes, uh, it is interesting that uh, very able historians who grew up in the South and knew a great deal about uh, the condition of blacks have pointed out that there are was in those days before all of this came about a character, a work ethic, a degree of education that has since disappeared in the black community. It's been downhill for a sizable percentage of the black community. Well, how many generations now has the welfare thing been in in effect? You know, you say it takes three generations to, to destroy wealth uh, how many generations would it take to destroy the work ethic among blacks or any other group? I know one uh, welfare worker who described going into a home where the grandmother, the daughter, and the granddaughter 
all unmarried were pregnant, and all three on welfare with a variety of children. Mark, would you like to make some general observations? Well, it's about the capital. You know, of course, the socialistic line is to criticize capital as being anti-labor, but in a sense, our capital is tied up in the hands of people who are sometimes of questionable character. You said, you said three, it takes three generations to lose inherited capital. Most people lose their wealth on a month-to-month basis. How much does an average person have of last month's paycheck? Mm-hmm. It's wealth is redistributed, re- redistributed, um, <laughs> redistributed, I'm sorry, redistributed, redistributed, no, that's not right. Well, never mind. Okay. Wealth changes hands, let's say. Wealth changes hands on an almost daily basis. Yes. And with, between our, our social welfare programs, confiscatory, confiscatory taxation, uh, regulations against business so people cannot go into business or they have to close down their business because it's too expensive to have a small business with workman's comp, etc. We have changed the way that money changes hands. So very often capital is in the hands of people who have learned how to play the game uh, of the bureaucrats. Yes. Who have So... They've learned how, if they're farmers, to take federal subsidies. They've learned how to survive by playing the game the bureaucrats have created. And so very often we can't say, well, let capitalism, let the capital, you know, make the decisions, because sometimes the capital is in the hands of people like Ross Perot, mm-hmm. who b- made his money off of government contracts and working with states to... Uh, create programs to help them uh, channel government funds. You know, I, I got this image very early when I was a kid. I used to go out to the San Francisco Zoo, and I used to march by all of these cage after cage after cage of all of these animals that I'd read about, these glorious animals in the wilds of Africa and the the wolves and all of these animals that had been able to get their own food for themselves. And here are these poor, bedraggled-looking animals in cages that were fed every day at 4 o'clock, and if you turned them loose, they'd starve to death. And it's, you know, yes. it's a, and people can't learn that lesson. It's so simple. You put people in a cage, no matter what you call it, whether it's welfare, the welfare cycle, or whatever, and pretty soon they, they don't know how to get, get for themselves anymore. Uh, in the 50s, Robert Ardrey wrote some books about uh, animal life and other things and indirectly writing about man. And he made a very telling point, uh, namely this. He said, zoo animals have an abnormal absorption with sex. They are welfare animals. They don't hunt. They're fed. So what happens to them when they have this security? All they do is to think about sex. It's the major aspect of their lives. And he said that our society is turning us into zoo animals 
with a preoccupation sex. Now, that was very perceptive because it was in the 50s and he saw what was about to happen. Uh, shifting uh, a little bit uh, in emphasis, in January I was in uh, Prince George, British Columbia, and both in Vancouver and in Prince George I was interested to see the tremendous influx of Chinese from Hong Kong. Now these Chinese cannot migrate into Canada, which is another British possession, unless they can deposit in British Columbia or in Canada $100,000 in the bank. Then they can come over. Well, what happens then is that uh, husband and wife and all the children go to work. Their 100,000 may have come from the sacrifice of relatives so that they could amass that much. And they are busy uh, earning money to send back to Hong Kong so another related family can come over with a hundred thousand and help work to bring another set of uh, peoples over. And it was amazing how little English these people had and how hard they were working and how eager they were to please because they, those jobs were important to them. It was a question of life and death for their relatives in Hong Kong. They wanted them out before Communist China took over Hong Kong in 96, I believe, isn't it? But in a few years. So they're racing against time. And they have demonstrated uh, how intense a work ethic can be. Well, the ones that can't raise the 100,000 will come to the United States because it'll be the boat people <laughs> thing all over again. We'll get all the poor ones from Canada. We'll get the ones with money. But they're still ready to work. Yeah. Well, the uh, going back to Mead's book, uh, he points out that uh, the biblical injunction that he who does not work, let him not eat, has been basic to the West. We could add that it has been basic to the progress of the West. Because in many cultures, uh, feeding the beggar is regarded as a virtuous thing, so you have a continual professional class of beggars. And in Buddhism, the monks, uh, or everybody becomes a monk for a month to go around begging. But... Uh, he says we have failed to overcome property because we have, instead of expanding opportunity, we have expanded the opportunity to get welfare. So we've shifted the ground from getting work to getting welfare. 
and we were going to promote equality by our uh, welfare programs and he says all this is coming to a halt its failure is very clear to the people and he says the idea of throwing money at social problems is decidedly passe and uh, while big government is still popular with the voters people are beginning to back off from the welfare state so uh, he says what we have now is a different kind of problem the poor no longer are people who are seeking work but people who don't want to work so we have a radical shift we are still assuming that uh, or Washington is that the trouble with these people is uh, they can't find jobs let's give them more education more training and more special programs and the problem is very different as he says a great many native born Americans do not work they don't want to work and this is true in other cities and he says non-work has devastated large sections of New York and he says there remain many hard-working self-reliant people in East Harlem but with over a third of the residents on welfare workers no longer set the tone one woman laments all those generations on welfare there is no respect anymore because people haven't worked well one of the solutions that's being tossed out now is uh, one of the old New Deal chestnuts which was a WPA program yes uh, to put all these people to work on infrastructure projects like bridges and that sort of thing but nowadays you have to have people with extraordinary skill to work you just don't put yeah. anybody building the bridge otherwise it's going to fall down <laughs> that's for sure so uh, it's going to take a much more highly trained workforce and at least somebody who can read blueprints and read plans and follow take instructions and follow them and uh, we just don't have that kind of a workforce when we today when major corporations have to teach people basic reading and arithmetic to get them to do simple tasks on an assembly line I don't think the WPA would work any longer well the army has to teach its uh, recruits how to read otherwise multi-million dollar equipment will be destroyed you teach somebody who doesn't want to work how to be a lawyer or an engineer or a teacher they're going to be a lawyer or a teacher and engineer who doesn't want to work in that field because if you don't have a work ethic mm -hmm. it doesn't matter what kind of an education you have you're not going to be productive well it has to be incentive you can't uh, punish productivity and reward sloth and that's what we've been doing no I know a white family where there is money and each of the uh, children receive 50,000 a year 
just handed to them. The net result is that uh, recently one of the sons and all of them are almost all are worthless. Uh, after seven years of education, uh, decided he did not want to follow the profession he had trained for. So he's doing nothing. Why should he if he can live at home and have $50,000 a year as well? So uh, whether it is through welfareism or through subsidizing one's children on the excuse, I don't want my children to go through what I had to go through, we are creating a non-working uh, class. And whether they're getting 50000 a year or a welfare check, you have to say they are lower class. Well, I became close for a time with the family uh, household name, uh, international merchandiser of uh, goods. I don't want to mention the name, but uh, he was a friend of mine for many years when uh, he didn't have anything. And uh, after his company went public and he became overnight uh, a millionaire many times over, he gave his son uh, too much and his son killed himself uh, with an automobile and a uh, high-powered automobile. His, uh, he had uh, daughters and the daughters got into drugs and they destroyed their lives. His wife had a nervous breakdown and uh, the, the money had just destroyed his family. Yes. He just didn't know how to handle it. He gave them too much too soon, and they just destroyed themselves with it. Mm -hmm. And this idea of wanting to make it easier for your own son, uh, it's, uh, it's a destructive thing. And uh, it's probably very difficult for sons to realize that... Uh, the deprivation that some parents subject their kids to is actually an act of love. It's what keeps yes. them alive. It gives them the will to survive, mm -hmm. to keep that uh, work ethic alive. Mm -hmm. Well, Mark, uh, would you like to add something to that? How do you find this in the in the Christian school? Uh, the general run of kids that come in, do they have what? What is their viewpoint toward the work ethic? As far as their their attitude toward schoolwork, which in a lot of people is a little different than their work ethic, otherwise, because lots of people didn't like school and had, was difficult, but I find that uh, when they get to, I teach 6th, 7th, and 8th, especially when they get to my 7th and 8th grade, they have to be certain, disciplined to a certain point. And there are times when I've discouraged people from enrolling their children if I thought the child didn't really want to come here be, to, to our school because <clears throat> I knew he wouldn't do well. He didn't have the work ethic. Or he didn't want to come. He didn't want to work that hard. I've had students who have been academically quite low, and yet they do fine.
because they're willing to work. And in some cases, the parents literally have to stay up, in you know, into the you know late hours, helping them get into those habits. Sometimes for a whole year, it's, it's been difficult for the parent and the student. But then the student has learned how to work if the student was willing to do it. I've had other students who've been very bright, scored very high on standardized tests, and yet they they're not willing to work. Well, I get from what it's, you're saying. It's, it's across the board. Of course, you have to remember, people who come to a Christian school come for a lot of reasons, and sometimes they're the wrong reasons. Well, that's what I was just going to say, is that some of the parents may be bringing their kids to a Christian school so that you can teach them what they failed to teach them, and this goes back to parental responsibility. You can't just throw it on to the, to the school to teach these basic concepts. If it doesn't come from the family, the school is... I don't care what you do, you're not going to be able to inculcate these values in them. So it's it's really a parental responsibility. Yeah, something you hear a lot with regard to education is talking about motivating. Because motivating is, is seen as, as the key, and that tells you something. It tells you that a lot of these students don't want to do anything, and they just refuse to do it. So it's the teacher's job suddenly to motivate the students to want to do well, that's a, their responsibility. I've always, always regarded that word motivating as a code word in the public school system for trying to teach what the parents were unable or unwilling to teach. And it all goes back to the, to the uh, parental and family responsibility. And unless that is biblically based and taught on biblical precepts, there's no school in the world that's going to be able to overcome that kind of a de- uh, I'd like to interject something about the school. Oh, it was perhaps two, three months ago when this person I didn't know uh, stopped me to say that uh, our school was uh, a remarkable one and uh, cited Krista Grassman. Mm-hmm. who is has a high profile working as she does at the bank and being so outstanding in every way that she was a credit to Cal Seaton and uh, to her family. So when we get children from the first grade or kindergarten on, then they do develop the work habits mm-hmm. and the difference is great. If they begin with bad habits in the state schools, it's very, very difficult then to uh, change them because the further along they are, the more the bad habits are entrenched. Mm-hmm. I, I would guess that we spend half of our efforts trying to instill good work habits discipline habits. Sometimes it's, it's behavior habits or dependability in doing homework assignments. We spend a, a lot of, of time doing that. If you, When you happen to get a class where you have those iron, problems ironed out, you can c- accomplish a great deal. You, you think then that it is teachable, even if the child doesn't come to school with them? It's possible. It's possible. It, it depends on the child. Sometimes I've, I've had poor results because the student is stubborn. And if a student's fighting learning, they're not going to learn. 
if a student wants to learn, they're going to learn. I think that's it. I, that's that's a key. But it's amazing how many students really don't want to learn anything. They have no desire to learn, and they don't care whether they learn, which shows how they're not at all future-oriented. They've got a terrible perspective, especially when they get up around 10, 12, 13 years old, they're approaching adolescence. And when they have poor attitudes towards the future, they're going nowhere, and they can't see it. That's unfortunate. It doesn't happen a great deal, but now and then we've had students like that who are going nowhere, and they don't seem to mind. Uh, going back to Dr. Mead's uh, book on the new politics of poverty, he makes a very interesting point that he says when he says that uh, we are seeing an increase in immigration into the United States that takes us back a generation or two or more. And he said it has uh, increased in the 60s, more so in the 70s, and even more in the 80s and now. And he says that's the legal immigration and the illegal from Mexico and other Latin American countries is very high. It's been estimated to be as high as 15 million. Uh, the difference between the current immigration is that it's mostly from the third world. But the interesting thing is that uh, most of these new immigrants find a job within the first day, even though they speak no English. <laughs> and they are doing jobs that neither American whites nor American blacks want. So they are improving the economy for everyone. And employers agree that the aliens are indispensable, Mead says. Uh, one man is quoted as saying, in New York City, businessmen in garment manufacturing, laundries, restaurants, and other fields have flatly stated that if it were not for the illegals, they would have to close up. Businessmen and their attorneys in Miami, Houston, and Los Angeles agree. Uh, one uh, store manager in the Bronx says, I can't recall one American coming in here and asking me for a job. According to another in Brooklyn, American citizens don't want to work for the minimum wage. The head of a furniture company on Long Island protested that my unskilled jobs go begging if aliens don't take them. Then he concludes a long section on immigrants with these words, the newcomers appear to have no job, the doubt that jobs exist. One young man from El Salvador told James Fellows in Houston, that he couldn't understand all the talk about unemployment, why he himself was holding three jobs. <laughs> yeah. So uh, the problem is that we have a non-working poor increasingly, and uh, people who find welfare 
profitable. The black families with two parents are rarely poor. The problems are moral problems, basically. And they are what is destroying the uh, black and white population and are creating poverty. Do you think that the uh, minimum wage should be lowered? I think it should be abolished. A few years ago, some black economists testified before Congress that a great deal of the damage done to the black community was the minimum wage law. Because they said, how else can these uh, untrained black youth get any training? Well, they can make more money selling drugs, no matter what the yes. minimum wage is anyway. But the, um, the um, it seems a little incongruous, or hip, at the least, or hypocritical, the worst for our government to uh, be touting free trade and uh, then have a minimum wage. In other words, we don't. We have selective free trade. Mm -hmm. We have a selective free economy. Mm -hmm. But I think there's a good chance that the minimum wage uh, could be lowered or altered somewhat because the unions have uh, lost tremendous ground in the past 10 or 15 years because of all of the jobs that have been exported. There are just not enough workers to support a lot of these unions. Yes. And unions have been the only ones, really, that have been, uh, you know, holding out for the minimum wage that have put pressure on Congress to keep it in, uh, keep it going. Child labor laws accomplish the same thing as minimum yes. wage. They keep children out of the workforce, mm -hmm. and so they don't know how to work. If yeah. the child has to wait till he's 18 years old before he has a real job, um, he's lost a lot of valuable training and a lot of children are willing to work yeah. I mean I, I I got kids out in our, our recess I wanted to mow our, our, our field and I had to get rocks out of it so I offered them 50 cents each to work for a 25 minute recess they all they were happy to do that sure. mm -hmm. and that's important for them to be able to get that and you know a lot of the rationale behind our child labor laws is you don't want a child of school age working mm -hmm. during the school week and yet, if you look at all of our community events, uh, community um, uh, things such as you know 4-H and Little League and the soccer leagues and all the the children's activities, they all take place during the school year. Mm -hmm. Summer, there's almost nothing for them. They all take place during the school year, during the school week. Uh, they're in effect saying these kids don't do anything after school. They don't do homework. So let's keep them busy with all these activities, but don't let them have a job. Well, that's destructive because I think that it's necessary for kids to see the product of their labor, you know, whether it's digging a hole or moving rocks or whatever, when they can stand back from it and see, I did that, I accomplished that today, uh, it, I think it gives them a much greater sense of self-worth. Well, Meade points out that... Uh New York and New England are apple-growing areas. And uh, they have to bring in migrant workers from Jamaica to pick the apples 
because there is no local labor that will take the jobs. Well, I've talked to grape growers down here uh, just south of us in uh, San Joaquin, Stanislaus County, and they actually had to go out and invent machines that would harvest mm -hmm. grapes because they couldn't get people that were willing to go out and harvest grapes. Or, or they wouldn't even come out and, uh, you know, trim the vines. The school year, when I was a boy, was set in terms of fruit picking because the school children were the major source mm -hmm. of labor for picking fruit, for cutting and drying fruit. Mm -hmm. And that has disappeared. The kids now can't do the work. Yeah. Well, there used to be families. You know, we have down here in Linden, we have the largest walnut growing area in the world. There's 36 square miles of walnuts grown down there. And it used to be all harvested by families mm -hmm. uh, that would go in and uh, contract uh, to the uh, farmers down there. And, and uh, now they have to have machines that go in, yes. vacuum cleaners, and uh, they shake the trees and then pick up the walnuts because the labor won't do that. And there is a loss with some of these processes. For example, the uh, earliest uh, form of uh, mechanical picking was the cotton picking machine. And uh, the waste is enormous. Well, there's another loss, too, is that it forces agribusiness to grow varieties that can withstand the handling yes. by machine. And you get varieties now which have... Uh, don't taste as good. You can bounce off the yeah, floor. Yeah, you can use them for tennis balls. And uh, nobody likes it, but that's all there is available. Mm -hmm. I went to work. I, I got a paper route when I was nine years old, and we fought to get the paper routes. Yes. And I remember um, the... Uh, the Social Security card, we had to go get a, a work permit and a Social Security card and uh, when I was 14 years old. Uh -huh. That was mandatory before you could you know, get a job at a regular wage. Uh, well, Meade makes this statement also, which I think is very telling. And I quote, Non-work constitutes the core of the social problem if not the whole of it, unquote. And behind it is a moral problem. So we come back to the same thing we have abandoned in education and in the churches, uh, a faith which teaches people how to work. And the result is that uh, entertainment has become the life for most, and uh, an emotional experience which leads directly to liquor and drugs. Well, we have the wealthiest poor in the world in this country. They have yes. television sets and cars and mm -hmm. have a regular income, even if it's from welfare. And uh, people in other countries, uh, I mean, that they can't even envision that. And the number of people who, as Mead points out, are ready to say they cannot afford to take a job. Mm -hmm. 
Well, there's an, uh, you know, there's an awful lot going for it between the food stamps and uh, the regular check and uh, uh, plenty of time on their hands. But they're killing themselves with it. Yes, and they are destroying our cities. They are destroying the fabric of American life. And we are doing this to ourselves. We have been voting in the politicians since Roosevelt who uh, have fostered welfareism in the welfare state. Well, it should be obvious by now that the politicians will never tell the truth about this. No. The black uh, leaders, black politicians, will not tell black people the way out of their misery. Because it's really a self-inflicted, you know, they're shooting themselves in the foot. I just can't believe that all of those men want to sit around and destroy themselves with alcohol and drugs if there was almost any other option open to them. But no one is there to tell them. Mm -hmm. Well, black leaders like Jay Parker in Washington, D.C., the black and white community knows little about them. Jay Parker is one of the most uh, important figures in the country in terms of what he does as an individual, and yet he's unknown to most people. Uh, he's a black Christian, a Calvinist, a free market man who's uh, worked in creating jobs in charity in one sphere after another is uh, remarkable. But uh, here is a man who's doing more than Jesse Jackson, but he doesn't get the coverage that Jackson does. Well, it just lends credibility to the fact that the change is going to come from the bottom and the people at the bottom are not going to get the headlines. So, you know, in order to survive, they're simply going to have to adopt the idea that there's no end to what you can accomplish as long as you don't care who gets the credit. And uh, you're just going to have to to uh, avoid the press and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, not care whether you get any headlines for what you do. It's going to be true... Christian missionary uh, approach. Yes, uh, I think it's very interesting that uh, uh, Colonel Donor and Joseph McAuliffe of our staff are busy in uh, Nicaragua fighting poverty by taking people who are ready to learn, teaching them a trade, setting them up with 300 a maximum of $600. And in one instance, one of their uh, trainees is now hiring 15 people. All of them are now self-supporting. We could use a program like that in the United States, but there are so many regulations it would be difficult uh, to apply this program to our inner cities. Well, there are already calls for government to get out of the way because they have demonstrated their inability to solve these problems. And uh, I think the growing realization is that government is going to have to scale itself back and simply get out of this, this business entirely. 
Well, it's going broke, so it will be out of business. It's <laughs> <laughs> <be a> self-liquidating <laughs> problem. Yes. And I think we saw a taste of what's coming under Jimmy Carter. Because if you recall, uh, under Carter, uh, inflation accelerated rapidly. Mm-hmm. And it created... Uh, serious economic problems and it's what defeated him. One of the things that happened was that a lot of people with foster children were handing the children back to the counties and cities because they couldn't afford to keep them for what they were getting. Now that's going to happen again. Welfare people are not going to be able to survive with the inflation that is probably ahead of us because inflation will move faster than the uh, state uh, grants and aid uh, will be forthcoming. Well, they're going to go broke. California's already run out of money for the fiscal year. They're starting to scratch around looking looking in all the different pockets to see where they can come up with another few hundred million to keep going until the end of the fiscal year. So they're going to have, though, some states have already cut back and they've put limits on welfare. And, uh, you know, that's the big topic of conversation in the talk shows nowadays is the states that have put, uh, uh, if a woman has another child, uh, she doesn't get any additional welfare for it. So there's no money in illegitimate birth anymore. Yes, one judge uh, uh, threatened a woman if she got pregnant again uh, with certain penalties. Perhaps some of these judges might even go back to time of the Crusaders for the chastity belts. (laughs) Start a new business. There's a new profit opportunity. Well, the trouble is that Congress will, and the EPA will get involved, and uh, they'll draw up uh, design regulations that would be impossible to meet. (laughs) Well, the connection between wealth, work, and poverty has been broken. And I think one of the reasons why it has been broken is the church. The church no longer preaches a work ethic. And when I was a boy, the amount of preaching, this was in the 20s and 30s, uh, directed at uh, stressing the work ethic, uh, was legion. Uh, It was a routine thing uh, to preach on the parable of the talents and other things and to stress the necessity of work. There was no other way. They said that uh, it was possible for a godly man to prosper. But uh, the churches now are too spiritual to preach what used to be very much a part of the old-time religion. They're almost trying to fulfill Marx's maxim. Yes. 
that, uh, you know, religion is the opiate of the masses. Uh, some of these churches uh, nowadays are uh, trying to make that come true. In a fuzzy-minded church in, here in California, a large and important one, where they believe they are very earnest and devout Christians, in a Sunday school class for five-year-olds, they passed out some pennies at random, just took them out of a little basket and gave them to each of the children, and then asked them to count them. And then the teacher said, Oh, Mary has five, and Johnny only has three. If we take one from Mary and give it to Johnny, they'll both be fair. Don't you think that is Christian? And they got the kids to agree after a great deal of coaxing. The kids didn't want to surrender the pennies. But this was pure Marxism. Sure. And they were teaching it as Christianity. And I heard of a situation where uh, the idea from each according to his ability to eat according to his need, which is Karl Marx, was taught as a Christian standard. Mm-hmm. Now, when you have that type of idiotic Christianity, it's no wonder that the world at large is what it is today. Well, you were saying this morning that in uh, Britain, how many churches are closing Since 1960, an average of a hundred a year, old churches, magnificent stone edifices, some going back to the medieval era, closing, becoming antique shops, uh, bars, little theaters, and so on. And uh, as a result, the... Both parties now are socialists to the core, and the country is slowly going downhill. The communists closed churches forcibly, and the Western world is closing them voluntarily. Yes, and when I was there last November, I uh, heard uh, Margaret Thatcher being accused uh, of a terrible offense, representing middle-class Christian morality. Oh, terrible. Yes. Of course, uh, it's what built the country. We haven't had anyone like that that we could accuse of middle-class <laughs> Christian morality. Mm. Well, any final comments before we conclude? Our time is nearly at an end. Well, maybe we can get Margaret Thatcher to come over here and run for, <laughs> run for president. Well, she wasn't born here, so she's not eligible, but I wish she'd come over and run for U.S. Senate and tell our senators a few things. Maybe she could become a bureaucrat and then really run things. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you all for listening, and God bless you. Authorized by the Calcedon Foundation. Archived by the Mount Olive Tape Library digitized by Christ Rules dot com